we believe that now SIM is a great technology. Uh, we all use you know, uh, SIM as a two-factor authentication for our banking and the like. So we thought that SIM is a, you know, a defense around uh, subscriber identity and, and, and thus a great place to start with uh, identity if only we can embed it into IoT devices. Welcome to We Talk IoT, a regular series of podcasts from the editors of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. This podcast is brought to you by Avnet Silica in cooperation with Microsoft. Hi, I'm Tim Cole, the editor-in-chief of Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine. Identity is the key to IoT, isn't it? And is digital identity all about trust? In our new print edition, we explore this subject extensively in an article and today I am joined here by Vincent Corstagne, CEO of Keegan, a pioneering startup devoted to creating efficiency, innovation, and sustainability through strong identity and trusted services in IoT devices and systems. Vincent, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Tim. I'm curious, what does Keegan mean? Ah, great question. So um, Keegan is uh, the Japanese for origin, and uh, we think that identity right, is the origin of where trust starts. Uh, at the same time, uh, we started this initiative uh, when SoftBank acquired Arm. Uh, now SoftBank being a Japanese company, uh, we thought it was a nice combination of, uh, of the, the, the start of things, the start of identity, as well as our J Japanese heritage. Interesting. Tell me, uh, how can the industry solve the fundamental issue of trust? Well, you've already hinted at identity. So, so to me, trust starts at the basic, right? Really at the low level and identity and digital identity is what now what identified devices. What we in Keegan have been uh, pondering and, and the reason we started this is that we believe that now SIM is a great technology. Uh, we all use you know, uh, SIM as a two-factor authentication for our banking and the like. So we thought SIM is a, you know, a defense around uh, subscriber identity. And, and, and thus a great place to start with uh, identity, if only we can embed it into IoT devices. So one of the things we are doing is uh, looking at SIM and creating it uh, into the, the main chip, into something we call iSIM or integrated SIM. And we are using that to defend the identity of a device, the identity of the, the network, and that will kind of be the basis of trust into these devices. Can you talk me through the evolution of cellular IoT and sims and e-sims okay yeah so so i think you now cellular iot uh, i think a lot of uh, people have been using uh, the, the 2g modules 2g are clearly a you know a well-established technology with a with a good price point uh, however uh, not quite the the battery power we need so we're seeing kind of the, the wide area network uh, the, the cat m modems and the narrowband iot modems coming to market uh, we believe that's really important uh, they are now uh, much uh, lower costs they're much lower battery usage uh, really important but also they have to fit into new form factors. So SIM itself is not particularly uh, useful because you have to you know, slot it into a little slot. So the industry came up with something called uh, eSIM, which you can then solder down onto your boards. And then the next step we are doing is kind of creating an iSIM, is introducing it into the, uh, the main chip. Now this allows you to, uh, to combine the radio chip, the, the cellular chip with uh, the security chip, as well as the, the main application processor, uh, making effectively three chips into one. And that really does give you a space saving as well as a, a lowering of overall cost, which we think is really important when you're looking at use cases that today aren't, aren't really using IoT and we really want to push into that now the prediction of the billions or trillions of devices. 
do you actually develop and make your own sims your own chips or do you go through oems um so, so we were started by arm and arm is very uh well known in the industry for 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 an ecosystem development so we are doing it similar we are using an ecosystem we are playing with multiple companies and we've taken a horizontal approach so we do um, the software layer uh, both on the sim uh, it's an os layer uh, on the sim as well as the server that keeps the sim up to date because and because with an eSIM and an iSIM you can no longer change the sim so if you want to change operator uh, you have to do that via software operations so we effectively do a horizontal play on enabling as many silicon partners or chip makers into the market and for us to uh, to standardize that on an os uh, with a security service to make sure that uh, we can keep it up to date but also we allow you to uh, to switch to every mno or mvno you want you are quoted in the past as saying that trust and security need to be baked in from the start. How does that work? Well, trust and security start with, uh, I, I talked about the identity. Uh, identity effectively is a key. I think you know, security starts with two main things. The things you, you have to trust, they call that root of trust. The things you have to trust about a device, you can't actually prove. So you have to put a key onto a device, uh, an identity, if you will. And as well as some code, which is the original code that starts running the device, the ROM code. Now, those two together will create your root of trust. And if you have that, you can start then making sure that you know, software that gets loaded onto the device gets checked um, with security checks to make sure it is the right software, it comes from the, the proper source. So we think it's really important to defend that identity at the root. Uh, because that is the the main weakness if you you have to have to take it on onto trust so you have to now make sure that uh, it is recognized and again that's where we use the, the sim and the eSIM technology it's all certificate based so you can you can check the certificate you know where the device comes from and then you can build everything on top of that because the device might be really simple say uh, for instance a temperature sens sensor but if the temperature sensor gets hacked then you cannot trust it anymore so the trust kind of starts from the device we call that you know, trust of uh, big data starts with little data because the real value of IoT clearly, as we all know, is in the, bus the business transformation. It's what we do with the big data. But the big data is only useful if you can understand where it comes from and you can trust where it comes from. So that's why we uh, believe that you know, if it's not baked in from the start, it becomes really hard to understand what is good data, what is bad data, and how do I take decisions. Trust also plays an important role in digital transformation in general. What's your take on that? Yes, yeah, similarly, right? You need to know what you're measuring, what you, the data is, is you're analyzing. And then obviously, if you trust your data and you uh, then take a decision, uh, you have to say, send that decision maybe back to the same device. Uh, device must have to take an action. Uh, say, again, the temperature uh, sensor might have to turn up the heating. Clearly, you know, that whole transformation, that whole chain needs to be uh, trusted. Uh, if anything breaks there, you, you might not be able to uh, to be able to operate uh, efficiently. Efficiently, now a, a temperature sensor might be quite a benign thing, but if it's something like you know, a smart meter or something kind of more sensitive, uh, industrial or uh, medical, I think it becomes more and more important to get it absolutely uh, spot on and make sure you can trust the whole chain. Who exactly are your customers? So because we work as an ecosystem, we have multiple customers. Generally, we, we talk to the chip makers. So the chip makers are uh, people like um, Infineon, uh, Samsung, Chinese uh, manufacturers of the, of the chips, but also uh, some of the radio makers, for instance, Sequence or Alif and Qualcomm are a few we are currently working with. And also the, the other side, we're working with the MVNOs because uh, IoT is global. So we believe that global connectivity providers are going to be really important uh, in, this, in this space. So other people would be like you know, a core wireless recently announced or an iBasis. Uh, large uh, MVNOs that are solving the my device switches on and how does it connect problem. 
the U.S. government especially, but other governments too, are pushing for backdoors in chips and systems that will allow law enforcement authorities to access data. What is your feeling about this? I, I think you know, fundamentally a backdoor is a bad thing for, for security because if, if there's a backdoor, one actor can, in, can come in, a different actor can also come in. So you know, on the one hand, yes, maybe it's really important that police and, uh, and, and, and governments uh, stop terrorists and thieves and, uh, and criminals. On the other hand, once you make, make a backdoor, uh, how can you stop other people getting into the same backdoor? So from a security point of view, backdoors are uh, particularly uh, difficult to do in a way that, that kind of can't be hacked. So in general, I think they should be avoided and we should you know, uh, have strong security and strong law enforcement where you know, they can maybe uh, have, a, have a warrant to, get, uh, to get, uh, get the data or go to the people who are using the data. But if you build in backdoors, you know, you're building in trouble for the future. Um, what should smart businesses consider when they talk about eSIMs and iSIMs specifically in the road to recovery from COVID pandemic in 2021 and beyond? I particularly like to talk about iSIM because that's probably less known. Um, to me, iSIM is a revolutionary step forward. Right, The design is going to go kind of... You know, probably half the cost, but also be going to be significantly smaller. I always compare this to, uh, to when the, the iPod was invented invented by Apple. Right? The iPod was invented by Apple thinking about, now what can we do with really small hard disks? They kind of knew that was going to come and they, uh, they reimagined the industry. Um, so I think the same is going to happen with iSIM. Uh, now we have the, the first silicon partner now shipping and, and the, the next you know, two, three coming online in the next six to nine months. And I think it will allow us to reimagine how we use cell cellular. For instance, now if you want to uh, apply to COVID, uh, some things like you know, a medical patch. Uh, we already have a, a smart tracker developed uh, by Sony where we're using iSIM and it's an, a printed plastic uh, sheet and one chip stuck onto it. The one chip does all the three things. So really interesting uh, new design. Uh, medical smart patches is, again, something that we might be able to imagine. And I, I know a couple of companies are working on that. So to me, right, the, there's a lot of now in, in, in new invention and, and how can we accelerate some of this digital transformation, particularly around medical, uh, but also about making our, you know, our life more flexible, uh, working from home, uh, living a little differently. So I think there's a lot of opportunity out there uh, once we all, all out of lockdown. Great. Our time, sadly, is running out, but maybe you have some parting advice for our listeners, for businesses who want to leapfrog and move fast to become a smart business. Simply, kind of IoT is happening as we speak. I can see more and more uh, customers working around ISIM. Uh, I think that this is the time to start investing. In the next six to nine months, we're going to see the industry radically change and, and we get more innovative products in the market. Products are going to be more and more product and a service where customers you now can do things with your product without having to worry about putting it on Wi-Fi, without having to worry about uh, now how do I uh, secure it. It gets all done for them. So I think that is really important. And uh, I think the, the next nine to 18 months are going to be uh, now tremendous when it comes to, uh, to new innovation. Yes, well, thank you, Vincent Crostagne, CEO of Keegan, for joining us and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Tim. It was really a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast, is sponsored by Microsoft. Microsoft Azure IoT Hub. Highly secure and reliable communication between your IoT application and the devices it manages. Azure IoT Hub provides a cloud-hosted solution backend to virtually connect any device. 
Extend your solution from the cloud to the edge with per-device authentication, built-in device management, and scaled provisioning. IoT solution based on Microsoft IoT Hub, then Avnet IoT Connect is your perfect choice. A standardized way to harness IoT so your business can quickly build smart apps and solutions based on the Azure platform. Digital twins are virtual replicas of physical assets, such as machines, buildings, or infrastructures. CityZenith, based in Chicago, has been active in bringing digital twin technology to the building industry to help cities fight climate change, and BBC recently called them, quote, a leading digital twin practitioner. Joining us today is founder and CEO Michael Jensen, who says he is on a personal mission to transform life in cities around the globe. Michael, cities produce three-fourths of the world's carbon emissions. Today, 55% of us are living in cities. That's 4.4 billion people, more than ever before. And that will increase to 68% by 2050. Michael, how vulnerable are the world's city dwellers in the face of climate change? The world's city dwellers are among the most vulnerable. With something like three quarters of global emissions now coming from cities alone and a massive influx of people into cities over the last several years. Uh, cities are not able to contend with populations the way they used to be. They're not uh, keeping up with the rate of development that they require. And as such, cities are getting hotter. Um, there are studies that, that link income, income inequality to, to, to thermal heating in cities, et cetera, et cetera. And the risks are, are many. Uh, you know, resilience will be a key challenge for cities around the world in the years to come. You maintain that increased access to data and technology can help protect urban area infrastructures and climate-proof our cities. How? That's right. I mean, tackling climate change, as it were, really should better be phrased as improving climate resilience in cities. And much of, much of that work is engineering and policy-related. Projects that will, for example, seek to install thermal heat pumps into homes that will in, uh, seek to retrofit existing commercial buildings with clean technologies that will seek to deploy renewable strategies on project sites. All of these things are sophisticated technologies that, driven by data and performance, that can be optimized by using software tools. And one of the things that digital twins do is take this input data and then optimize various types of outcomes drawing from a very large base of data. And in the case of climate change and climate resilience, because there are so many concurrent issues that have to be addressed, digital trends provide a good platform for that collaboration. How do you simulate the impact of changing and intensifying weather events on buildings? The way that we do that is, is really a twofold process. The first is the integration and aggregation of those core data sets necessary to make those simulations. We did this in the capital city of, of Amravati in, in, in South India, which was the first new capital city to be built in India in something like 70 years. Uh, Norman Foster was the architect. And the challenge there was to provide our platform to all of the different architects working on developing housing schemes for that project in, in real time, and then to run simulations using an artificial intelligence tool that could predict things like average street temperature 
wind patterns, uh, thermal patterns, etc. So with, by integrating with a, a, a microclimate simulation tool, architects were able to import their 3D models, manipulate them, add elements, things like landscaping, architectural features, and continually re-simulate and re-simulate and re-simulate until they achieve the objectives that they were looking for. So it's um, these types of simulations require an intense amount of input data, and, and digital twins become the library, if you will, for that data. You promise to help architects, building owners, and property managers to leverage data like never before. How do they respond to your offer? You know, digital twins as a market is a vastly quickly growing space. It was something like a $4 billion market last year, growing at 45% per year for the next five years. So the space itself is full of activity and will be considered to be a very rapidly growing tech area. I think Gartner called this the one of the top 10 tech trends in the world for the last three years running. Architects are one of the targets. Uh, typically, digital trends are aimed at the end owner or the operator of the facility, where an architect is typically users. So the, the end operator is really the one who's looking to achieve the operational efficiencies over time. And that's because the operator will be owning and using that asset over many, many, many years. And hence, digital twins can help to achieve efficiencies. So the architect has a role there uh, in that process, but it's really the end operator who is the beneficiary. The United States have given themselves a new administration, which appears to be more friendly towards the idea of uh, reducing carbon emissions and saving the people from climate change. Is that going to help? Yes. The election of the Biden administration will certainly help with the advancement of the industry generally. And uh, not only that, but this particular administration is moving very quickly to roll out a number of policies at the same time, which I think is quite impressive. Yes, not the U.S. alone, uh, but the U.S. in combination with other countries like China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, all Canada, all now agreeing to these, you know, these, these carbon neutral goals by, say, 2050 timeframe. Uh, yes, it's definitely going to push the market in a significant way. In the old days, which means just about yesterday, most software platforms were disjointed, not connected. That has changed in your technology platform called Smart World Pro, which was introduced in 2019, looks like a real game changer, right? Well, it is. I think the, the, the challenge of uh, the, the, the game of software in the past is about solving individual problems with, a, with, a, with each with a different piece of software. And as that strategy proliferated over time, you end up hundreds and in fact, thousands of tools, hundreds of different data formats, and then many of those tools don't, and, and, and in many cases deliberately don't, interoperate. So there was a need for consolidation. Large-scale projects, which is much of what happens today, simply can't be executed with efficiency without common platforms that allow collaboration at scale. So the uh, it was time for something like this, and recent advances in technology have really made it possible now to, to actually go ahead and do this. So... The next you know, five or seven years are going to be very interesting. So IoT is the solution, right? IoT is part of it. What makes IoT so powerful is that as a data input to a digital twin, IoT or, or sensor data generally is real-time information. So a lot of what, for example, urban-scale digital twins will have different types of data. 
Some of it will be static or annual or quarterly or monthly, and others will be real-time, like traffic or security cameras or temperature and thermometer settings, things like that. So IoT is kind of the game changer because it enables reactions and responses in real time. And I think that will be the game changer for, for cities generally. Cyber Zenith has been quite successful in roping in investors through the InfraShares investment platform. What are your future growth plans and how will you finance them? Well, we recently, uh, thank you for saying so, we launched um, our own regulation, A+, uh, which is a public capital raise in the U.S. in l- late last year. And in total, the company has raised over $9 million. But in this particular, this new funding round, we, we've raised $2 million. In fact, we just announced that, I think, today to the public within the past you know, few months. So we'll continue with this. We have the, the rights to raise 15 to $20 million like this from, through the public. So we'll continue with this Regulation A+. I like it because anybody can invest. Um, you don't have to be super rich or, or an institution or a VC. And that's what has made it so rewarding for me is, is to be able to work with really people from all over. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're on the right track. Thank you, Michael Jensen, founder and CEO of City Zenith, for sharing your insights with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. And now, one more thing. The most dangerous moment in mining is when someone lights the fuse and everybody starts running. Davy Bickford, a subsidiary of Annex, the world leader in mining services, wants to defuse the situation with its remote control electronic detonator called Davytronic Edge. The system uses a common IoT radio frequency protocol to communicate with up to thousands of detonators before triggering each explosive device. Electronic detonators have been around since the 90s, but, says Aramik Denuel of Davy Bickford, the Achilles heel were the fixed wire networks connecting the detonators to the blasting machines, which were complex and prone to electric leakage. Early wireless detonators were unidirectional. In other words, signals could only be sent to a detonator, but no response could be received. Davytronic Edge not only does away with the need for surface wiring, but controls multiple electronic detonators from a single safe location, thereby making the blasting process less risky and more efficient. Until now, mining workers were forced to manually check conditions before pressing the button, a process known as priming the blast. This is costly and time-consuming, as well as risky in the event of human error. But the main worry was finding detonators that failed to go off, which required searching for hours through huge piles of debris. The new system has been successfully tested in a large pit mine in Chile, where it proved capable of operating safely over a distance of several kilometers. As Eimeric Dunuel says, quote, our goal is to always provide safer solutions so that our customers can trigger larger blasts. Time is money in this industry, and mining companies need to spend more time collecting the ore than organizing the blast. That was We Talk IoT, the Smart Industry Podcast. You can read all the latest from Smart Industry, the IoT business magazine 
by visiting our website at www.smart-industry.net, where you'll find hundreds of feature articles about everything from smart manufacturing and cognitive computing to autonomous driving and how IoT and AI are making business smarter. There, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Smart Industry Updates. I'm Tim Cole. See you back next month when, once again, we talk IoT.